0: I'm George Mason, host of Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. My guest today is the Reverend Michael Waters, a pastor in Dallas who is going to be talking with us about economic justice, about poverty in America and in Dallas, Texas, and how we can address it with our faith. Welcome to Good God, Conversations that matter about faith and public life, um, the intersection of the common good and a good God who drives us toward public well being and human flourishing. We're glad to be joined today by Michael Waters, the Reverend Michael Waters, who is a pastor of the Joy Tabernacle. African American Episcopal Church, along with the historic Agape Temple uh, African American Episcopal Church. He is the co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas also, uh, a leader in bringing together uh, people of different faiths, religious leaders who are organizing for the common good in Dallas, Texas. Michael, welcome to our program today. We're really glad to have you. Thank you. And Michael is also the author of this book, Stakes is High. Uh, uh, Race, Faith, and Hope for America. Um, Actually a line taken from a hip hop song, uh, Stakes is High. Michael, you uh, have uh, been in the news quite a bit in the past uh, year, uh, stretching back several years in in part as uh, we uh, remember the shootings in Dallas in July of uh, 2015. But most recently, uh, you've been uh, out in public Uh, calling for the removal of uh, Confederate monuments uh, and the changing of names of schools and things of that nature. And you were helpful in the successful uh, taking down of the Robert E. Lee monument at Lee Park and the subsequent renaming of the park. Uh, So that was a a, a contentious matter in our city. Uh, Some people thought suddenly it was contentious. And for many people, I think, uh, it's been contentious under the under the radar for a long time. So for those who think this was a sudden reaction to the Charlottesville uh, rally, for instance, right. what would you say to them about the presence of these statues in Dallas? Well,
1: there is a very vicious history in relationship to these monuments. Uh, we know that historically their numbers increased during times of terror. Uh, these were not built to honor the Civil War dead who were part of the Confederacy, but they were really about the reclamation of Southern spaces for white supremacy. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, as you look on many of the monuments, etched ex- literally on the monument, you'll find words like white supremacy or white virtue. And this was a part of the, the counteraction to the Reconstruction era, the, the Freedmen's Bureau moving out of the South and really uh, white individuals reclaiming this notion of, of the, the white supremacy in the South. Mm-hmm. And so it happens immediately you know, after the end of the Reconstruction and then returns again during the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, putting again a stake in the ground during that time of rapid change, saying we will not be moved, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. forever. It's part of that George legacy, Wallace, right? Yes. And so mm-hmm. when you really understand the purpose of these monuments mm-hmm. and their placement in front of of, of spaces of power, yes. in front of courthouses and in city squares and in front of city hall, you recognize that they were really a marker mm-hmm. to, to really inform Uh, an entire people of their so-called place in society. Mm -hmm. And so for them to remain says much about how we value those people's descendants today.
0: Yes, so there, there is always the a claim among white Americans that this is simply a recognition of heritage, uh, an acknowledgement of history, and that to uh, take these down is to deny a period of history that was not uh, not all sinful and evil, but there were noble people who uh, fought for principles and these sorts of things of civilization. But heritage goes both ways, doesn't it? In other words, what what do do those symbolize in terms of heritage for black Americans?
1: Well, in an in instance, they, they were racial propaganda. We know right. that, right? They, they told a story of America in the South that was a falsified truth, right? It was not true, it was a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, so much damage continued to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a direct correlation between the raising up of these uh, monuments to white supremacy, as I believe they should be rightfully called, and the increased lynching Uh, that happened all throughout America really, but particularly in the deep south, which at its height, there was a black man, woman, or child lynched every two days in America. Imagine if in America today, every two days, there was a black person disappeared from their family, only to be found hanging from their neck from the nearest tree, that's the reality. And so we have to really talk about history, uh, the brutal nature of it, mm-hmm. and recognize when there have been forces who've tried to cast a false vision on top of that real history. Now, I was I was particularly blessed to study with a gentleman by the name of Glenn Linden as an undergraduate at SMU, one of the leading scholars of, of the Civil War. And he and I had a number of conversations together, and later on, when I served as founding director of the Civil Rights Pilgrimage, he came on as the faculty lead. And as we traveled throughout the Deep South, there were all these very interesting intersections between Civil War history and Civil Rights history. Mm -hmm. For instance, Mm -hmm. with Montgomery, the cradle of the Confederacy, the capital Confederacy, is the same space where only a block down Martin Luther King Jr.'s first pastor at the Dexter Avenue right. Baptist Church. It's right there in that tension, right? right? So one was serving as a corrective, if you will, right. for the other. All this to say that this is a debate that really should not be a debate. Uh, if you know the history, if you embrace the history, you understand that these monuments should never have been erected in the first
0: place. I, I'm uncomfortable with the word monuments to begin with, to be honest with you. I, I think Monuments are things that we erect to call all of our citizens to aspire, to live up to uh, those things being represented. Uh, These are better probably called memorials to begin with. That is to say uh, they, they are figures that remember a certain history and they always need to be interpreted. Uh, but they don't necessarily need to be aspired to.
1: Well, I think, I, they I, are about I, past, yeah, yeah. not future. Well, I, I think a little bit differently. I think okay. a monument really does speak to what a community values. Yes. And I believe these Confederate monuments speak to what America values, which ah. is whiteness. Ah, yeah. And, and, and making whiteness normative, making whiteness aspirational, right. making whiteness supreme. I think that's right. how they function. I think that's how they continue to function.
0: But that's the very point of why it's necessary for them to come down. Exactly. All right, And but it's not just that they come down, uh, it's also that something be put in their place. That is to say something that actually unites the community, that raises the memory of others that have been forgotten, uh, because you, you mentioned lynching and, and the history of lynching in this country, uh, which, um, Many people might love Billie Holiday, uh, but they don't understand what strange fruit really is. Yes. It, it, it's a reference, of course, uh, to lynchings in the South. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and here in Dallas, we have a history of that as well. So I know that you're working not only to bring down these, uh, these monuments uh, to uh, white supremacy, but also to remember the history of people like uh, Alan Brooks, uh, who in 1910 was lynched right here in Dallas, Texas yes. at the corner of Ackerd yes. and Elm? Main. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ackerd uh-huh. and Main Street. Mm-hmm. T- say more about that story and about why you think it's important that all Dallas not forget that but actually remember it and recognize it in some public way.
1: Well, it's it's a, it's a horrific story of a domestic worker who has served families off of Pearl Street for years mm-hmm. without incident, who a young white girl goes missing, mm-hmm. as it's reported, and when they find her, they find her with him. Mm-hmm. Now notice that there's nothing in the story that they find them in any type of inappropriate act. Right. But the assumption is because she was missing and is found with him, there must have been something untoward happening. Mm-hmm. He's arrested, he's held, and on the day of his initial trial, a mob breaks in, tie a new around his neck, pull him out of the second floor window. Red courthouse. Red courthouse. Downtown. He falls on his head. Historians debate whether that fall actually killed him or not. We don't know, maybe just knocked him unconscious. But he's dragged literally on the ground for half a mile. During the dragging, the noose breaks, they re him, if you will, mm-hmm. drag him, and he's lynched then at the corner of Main and Ackert before a crowd of several thousands. It's about, it estimates between five and 8,000 people mm-hmm. come to see this man as he is hung. His body is taken down. Now another part of the history is that the mob is so rabid in their desire to see black blood that they have to shut down the city because the mob then shifts its attention to uh, the railroad, to trains, and they're looking to pull off any black person from that train and lynch them as well. So it lets you know that there's something greater happening here. The reason this is important is that the picture of the lynching be, is made into a postcard wow. that is mailed all across the world as an image of Dallas. Right. And so really there's not been any other image that has gone as expansive across the world as an image of Dallas alone right. as was that postcard at that time. Right. And we need to reclaim, if you will, that space, yes. not only in memory of Alan Brooks and many others who've fallen, but to reclaim that space as a way we don't want to return to.
0: It, it seems that in Dallas we have a way of wanting always to move on. Uh, the, the, the call to heal and to be a city for everyone though is at times a call that is necessary and that is to remember and reflect. And this is part of our biblical religion, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we can't be healed uh, we can't have a sense of forgiveness and reconciliation without a sense of confession and repentance. And so there, there is an important public sense of, of this uh, vital need for us to face our history, uh, not so that we'll wallow in it, not so that we'll uh, simply uh, give recognition, but so that we we will acknowledge that we are the heirs of this and and, and we're going to determine that we won't live that way again.
1: one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King is that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. Nice. And sometimes the tension serves as a a navigator Mm -hmm. towards the peace you ultimately seek. You have to allow that to guide you into a greater peace a truer peace for all people but it can't get there uh accidentally Mm -hmm. it has to be uh, steps taken intentionally to heal and to restore
0: well you mentioned dr king and i think this is a good segue for us and when we come back from the break i'd like us to explore a little more of the unfinished legacy of dr king Uh, as he began to move from uh, civil rights that was more about racial justice to economic rights and to uh, the the war on poverty. And so uh, let's pick that up again when we come back from this break.
2: The Wilkinson Center mission is to transform the lives of Dallas families by providing pathways to self-sufficiency with dignity and respect. The Center fulfills that mission by helping families face critical life challenges including food insecurity, lack of education, economic instability, unemployment, and underemployment. Their formula for success is case management, compassionate staff, dedicated volunteers, and effective individualized programming. All programs are provided free of charge. Since its inception, Wilkinson Center has distributed in excess of 5 million pounds of food, more than half, to children. With comprehensive case management services, Wilkinson Center extends a full breadth of programs to its clients and helps them obtain additional social services, such as food stamps and Medicaid. Education is fundamental to overcoming and breaking the cycle of generational poverty. And Wilkinson Center's programs provide a path to self-reliance and financial independence. Good God with George Mason is pleased to salute the great work of the Wilkinson Center in our community.
0: And we're back with Michael Waters, Good God Conversations That Matter. Uh, Michael, we were talking before the break about uh, the fact that Dr. King was actually killed in Memphis, Tennessee at the very time when he was uh, there to mobilize people uh, for economic purposes, not just for racial justice, but uh, the sanitation workers there. Uh, and uh, that, was, uh, that was a new uh, element in his evolution, in his work. Uh, because poverty, of course, has a racial root, but it is also something that everyone has to deal with. Uh, In your book, I noticed that uh, you talked about uh, the fact that there is a disproportionate experience of poverty in the black community. Uh, That while the black community is something like uh, 13% of the American population, uh, the truth is 70, uh, uh, sorry, 27.4% of black people live in poverty in this nation. And over the course of the years 2010 to 2013, white families increased in median wealth from 138,000 to 141,000. And the median wealth of black families decreased from, get this, 16,000 in 2010 to 11,000. That's wealth, Uh, not just income. We're talking about wealth accumulation. It's an extraordinary disparity between white and black in America today. And so you have been uh, trying to lead Faith Forward Dallas to address some of these matters uh, in our state and local communities. And you've been uh, in conversation with and have brought the Reverend William Barber uh, to Dallas who is helping in his moral movement to, uh, uh, to, to seek to redress uh, the issues of poverty in America. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign that Dr. King started, uh, you are picking up again uh, in this work. Would you say a few words about the Poor People's Campaign?
1: Well, I think it's essential for the future of this nation, and it's not just for black people. Uh, there is an economic assault upon all communities, in particular white Americans, white rural Americans, Mm -hmm. who are suffering under uh, the weight of the economic crisis before them. Mm -hmm. And even Dr. King alluded to that as well. Dr. King said um, in in his book, um, Why We Can't Wait, basically that if white poor people ever really awoke into the fact, awake, or to the fact, or awakened to the fact that they were being harmed uh, by the same economic policies as black people, then they could unite together and really change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. King, before he died, he said that, what good is it to have an opportunity to sit at a lunch counter, but you can't afford the hamburger? And really that shifted this idea to economic justice as a part of the civil rights movement. And of course, he was failed by an assassin's bullet uh, before that work could really be pushed forward. Dr. Barber and others have been uh, uh, so inclined to pick up this mantle and to really advance it in what is now the 50th year anniversary of the King assassination. And individuals across the nation are seeing this as one of the key markers in the struggle today. Um, As I talked to to Dr. Barber this past past summer, as we were at a conference speaking uh, together, uh, I told him, I said, you can't begin a Poor People's Campaign and not come to Dallas because in so many ways, statistically, Dallas is the epicenter of poverty. Mm -hmm. And he agreed, and I was very grateful, uh, that you and others were part of the work of bringing him here. And so many were inspired by his presence, Mm -hmm. and I believe are motivated to be a part of the work going forward.
0: So a good bit of this uh, moral movement that Dr. Barber talks about and the Poor People's Campaign is focused on public policy. Yes. Now, in, in much of the white community, the idea of focusing on public policy to address poverty is counterproductive because the idea is the less government you have, right. uh, the more people can flourish by education, hard work, um, entrepreneurship, uh, being involved in the private sector where wealth is built and through personal responsibility and activity and the like. Uh, How do you address people who make that argument uh, when uh, the idea of government policies that are taxpayer-funded, are directed toward a kind of economic leveling of the field, so to speak. What, what would you say about that?
1: Well, the unique thing about that conversation is individuals only have an issue with public policy helping people when it's helping black people, right? <laughs> when you think about the New Deal, when you right. think about what we talked about in terms of uh, the loans that were given in the 1930s, we think about welfare today, which the majority of individuals on the welfare rolls white individuals, particularly in in rural communities, who benefit from these governmental funds. There's just this notion, and it's really sinister, that Mm -hmm. if any other community other than white people have access to these policies or these financial supports, uh, that there's something wrong, Mm -hmm. um, that they're not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Poor people are some of the most hardest working people. Uh, I know, work two, three, four jobs just to try to climb uh, to the to poverty line. And so it, it's always interesting, but that even goes to laws. There's studies, and it's even included in the book. There's studies that show that white communities favor laws that have a disproportionate negative effect upon minority communities. Right. And we've gotta unearth those very uncomfortable truths to really pave and move forward in a, in a different way.
0: Michael, how do you respond to the fact that um, when we talk like this, um, many white people hear that as as sort of code language for democratic partisan politics, right? Uh, We're gonna have a poor people's campaign, and that means uh, we're we're gonna try to elect more Democrats instead of Republicans, and so it's really uh, just language that is partisan. Uh, I, I think on the other side, there are a lot of code language things that uh, sound very Republican to, sure. to people who are on the other side, but if, if we talk about these things in spiritual terms and, and yet it touches on public particy, p- policy, somehow it becomes partisan politics.
1: I, I think that the, you know, kind of reclaiming even the sacred writ, re- reclaiming of the Bible uh, the canonized scripture, as an instructive on building beloved community ah. would be helpful. And th- the idea of Jubilee, uh-huh. of of eradicating poverty in community, right. this idea of Pentecost, and Pentecost is more, I think everyone is so captivated by this supernatural, mysterious experience of of cloven tongues, and they fail to recognize that the true marker of Pentecost was that they shared everything in kind, mm-hmm. and that they removed poverty from their midst, right. and that when God is truly at work among you, you right. leave no person behind. Right. So we've had a we've had a focus on the scriptures um, again that I think have been less hopeful. to to building the type of communities uh, that we need to have. And so I think the the benefit of Dr. Barber and so many others is that they are drawing forth from the wealth of the prophetic uh, tradition within Scripture, and they are casting a new vision for how we can all live into that.
0: It seems that one of the things happening in our political culture right now is that there is disillusionment with both parties uh, in the system, so it feels to me at least like there is an opening right now. Uh, An opportunity to say that, uh, you know, big money and partisan politics uh, don't know labels. They they really have to do with institutional uh, kinds of ways of keeping certain people in power and keeping others out of it. And and there's a rising up, I think, of people uh, looking for another alternative. And it seems that this biblical tradition you're talking about uh, that wants to uh, see the flourishing of all human beings and bring people together uh, in a new sense of community. Uh, Rather than the individualism, the Mm -hmm. dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest kind of of way, uh, the identity politics of my group versus your group, Uh, There has to be a way to draw people together for the common good.
1: Well, the the language being used is the moral center, right? Not the left, not the right, but the moral center to which we are all drawn. This idea of fusion politics, fusion coalitions, Mm -hmm. a a gathering of a multiplicity of parties and experiences Mm -hmm. who are willing to collaborate and work side by side for the cause of justice, that it's in the center that the true change and and even the revolution uh, will take place.
0: You write in your book, I believe that Texas can become a great state. I believe it can become a state where all children are fed. I believe it can become a state where the sick are cared for. I believe it can become a state where laborers are paid fair wages, where affluenza is appropriately diagnosed as privilege and where our diversity is embraced as our strength. However, to get there, we must finally come face to face, face to face with Texas racist palpitations. So uh, the hope for our state and for America is partly in facing these injustices and inequities that are deeply embedded in all of this. And it seems to me that what you're trying to do is uh, to, to help us to see them and to be honest about them so that we uh, actually will address them instead of just coding over them and trying to move on.
1: The sin of segregation is that you don't see one another. Right. You don't see each other as human. You don't see uh, the divinity on each, inside of each other. Mm-hmm. You don't see the similarities in experience. That at the end of the day, all people want the same thing. They want to be loved, they want to love, and they want to be cared for. They want to be able to be sustained in life. And so much of our city, so much of our world continues to be segregated in a way where we don't see each other or see one another as an essential part of each other's lives. Uh, again, I reference Dr. King so much, but I think his words continue to provide great value for our struggle today. And he says it's important to recognize that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere because we are woven together in this inescapable network, network of, of mutuality, mutuality. What impacts one impacts us all. So the more we begin to remove these unnecessary barriers and really see the oneness of humanity, the more we can be healed and go forth to build a better day.
0: I think often people think about prophets as people who simply speak about what God plans to do in the future, and they fail to see this important point that you're talking about, and that is that the real definition of a prophet is one who sees the truth in the moment, who recognizes what is happening in the world and speaks of it. Seeing and speaking, seeing and hearing from God what is actually going on for the sake of what might happen uh, in producing the vision for God, of God for the world.
1: Well, that's my hope for this book, and very humbly, it was just named the 2018 Wilbur Award winner for nonfiction, but the whole point is to uplift the idea that the stakes really are high yes. for all of us, Wonderful. and that we must take this moment to serve as a corrective to that history. It's gonna take courage, Mm -hmm. But persons have exhibited courage before us, not only in the Scriptures, but even in recent history, and so there are footsteps in which we can follow.
0: Well, we'll close with this uh, quotation from, as you call him, the late 20th century urban prophet Tupac Shakur, who said, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the brain that will change the world.
1: Indeed, that's our hope.
0: You are hope. Uh, for sparking our brains and uh, for God doing some important work of change in our communities because of it. Thank you, Michael, for being Thank our you. guest today.
2: Peace to you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Our guest coordinator and communications director is Jay Pritchard. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for Location Production Facilities, Evolve Technology for Home Audio, Video, and Lighting Design enjoy more think less with evolve see their great work at evolvedallas.com thanks to wendy crispin caterer for guest parking accommodations good god conversations with george mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about god and faith and the common good all material copyright 2018 by faith commons